0: Reginald Paul has been styled as both the nemesis of Henry VIII and as Mary I's bloody accomplice. Born in 1500 into the highest circles of English aristocracy, he was related to the English royal family through the Plantagenets, who at one time or another threatened the Tudor kings of England. Paul himself was implicated in a plot against Henry in 1538. did this man, who would become the last Catholic Archbishop of Canterbury, rise to his status in the church and then use it for and against the Tudor monarchs? How should we remember his role in the religious changes of 16th century England, before his premature death in 1558, on the same day as Queen Mary herself? And, following Lambeth Palace Library's recent exhibition about Pole, why should we remember him today? To tell the story of this complex, charismatic individual, I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Frederick Smith, early career fellow in early modern history at Balliol College, Oxford, whose first book, Transnational Catholicism in Tudor England, was published in 2022. Dr. Smith, welcome to
1: Not Just the Tudors. Thank you for having me.
0: Can we start by thinking about... Cardinal, as he is later, Reginald Paul, spelt Paul, but pronounced Paul generally, his family, because it's all down to his family really in the end, isn't it? So can you explain who he is, who his parents are, and also give us some sense of how he was treated by the first two Tudor kings in the early years?
1: So family is key to understanding, mainly his whole life, and it comes back all the way through. So he's from a noble family, and that is something which is very important to him and he holds on to. So he is of Plantagenet descent on his mother's line. And so his uncle is the only surviving direct and legitimate heir of Edward III, which means that the Paul family has a very strong claim to the throne. However, he also has a family history of treachery. So his grandfather is executed for treason in 1478. And his uncle is also executed for treason in 1499. Yet his uncle is supposedly involved in the Perkin-Warbeck plot against Henry VII. And so he has this dual legacy in his family. One, this very strong position which puts him in line to the throne. But on the other hand, the fact that he's had all of these members of his family associated and executed for treason, which means that his family has been robbed and stripped of its wealth and its lands, which puts his family very much at the mercy of the Tudor kings. And under Henry VIII, Paul's mother is brought back into favour and she becomes part of the household of Catherine of Aragon and she is sort of patronised by the Tudor king. And what happens then is that Paul himself and his brother get their education paid for by Henry VIII. And so he has this conflicted relationship with the Tudor line. In one sense, he's a threat to the Tudor line. And the Paul family, especially his older brother, Henry Lord Montague, is a threat to the Tudor line because of this Plantagenet ancestry. But at the same time, Henry VIII keeps them close and is patronising them. So it's almost as if Henry VIII is keeping his enemies or potential enemies close, as it were, getting them loyal to him.
0: Henry VIII encourages Paul to take up a career in the church, which leads him to Italy, to Padua, where he develops a reputation for being virtuous, incredibly learned. Could you give me some sense of how Italy, and particularly its scholars, shaped the young Paul?
1: Yeah. So this first trip to Italy in 1521. So Paul has been a young scholar at Oxford, and then he's gone off to continue his education in Padua, which is a renowned centre for learning, especially Renaissance humanism in Padua and in the university, especially. Now, Paul doesn't actually join the university, but he is educated nonetheless by some really, really famous Renaissance humanist scholars. So in particular, there's one Niccolò Leónico Tomeo, who is particularly renowned for his Hellenistic scholarship. So the study of Greek, the study especially of Aristotle. And so it's under his tutelage that Paul is really developing as a Greek humanist scholar. And Paul really takes to this scholarship. He becomes quite well known throughout Italy, certainly, but even beyond as a renowned student of Greek, he begins amassing this collection of Greek manuscripts, which is something which draws lots of people to him who want to study the manuscripts that he has in part of this developing library, but also to ask and talk to Paul about it. He even gets praised by Erasmus, the most famous humanist scholar of the age, as this great ornament of learning. So he's really developing in this time as quite a famous figure in his own right. Yes, for his piety, but the piety bit, I think, probably comes a little bit later on. He's certainly developing his pious nature in this period, but it's more as this student of Greek manuscripts, of humanist literature, that he's really developing a reputation.
0: Given that he's in this dynamic, exciting environment, surrounded by remarkable people, no doubt revelling in discussion and debate, it seems rather incongruous that in 1526, He returns to England and chooses a life of seclusion in Sheen, even refusing offers by Henry VIII of Bishoprics. What's going on?
1: Yeah, it's difficult to say. I mean, there's this famous text, the dialogue between Paul and Lupset. It's kind of a made-up dialogue. We don't know quite how close it is to the truth. And it's all about how Paul seems to be, like you say, withdrawing inwards. And Lupset is basically saying, look, why are you doing it? You should be, like, using this great brain you have to benefit the state. You should be using your intellect to help, especially, you know, Henry VIII, in whatever matters that he may need. So this is the bit where it gets murky, because it's very difficult to follow what's going on in Paul's own mind. So it may be that he is already beginning this slow and gradual conversion to a new type of Christianity, which he's certainly engaging with in Italy at this point. The problem is that the clearest indication of this kind of conversion actually is coming later in the 1530s. But we can predate it if we want to, to see that that's why he comes back and withdraws into this Carthusian monastery in Sheen to contemplate these big religious questions which are coming into his mind. But regardless, that is certainly what happens. He comes back to England. He seems to continue this almost spiritual awakening, as it were. But he gets rudely awakened from that by the king's great matter, the campaign for a divorce, which robs him of any chance to continue on that path, at least for the time being.
0: Is it at that point that he starts to develop this antipathy towards the king, if that's the right way of characterising it? When might we say, and why might we say, that Paul becomes Henry's nemesis?
1: Again, a really difficult moment to pinpoint and i think it isn't something that happens in a moment there's no sort of damascene conversion where he's suddenly like oh no i don't agree with this man it's a slow process certainly in the late 1520s he seems to be someone who is the king's loyal servant in a sense he has been groomed to be henry's loyal servant ever since a child he's been sponsored by the king to go to padua before that to go to oxford his family is dependent on the tudors in a sense the king sees him as being destined for a place in the church but a place where he's basically Henry's loyal stooge, for want of a better word. And he seems to be fulfilling that role, because in 1529, he's dispatched to Paris as part of this broader campaign by Henry VIII to get an agreement on his plans for a divorce from Catherine of Aragon from various different European universities. And so Henry VIII sends out various different envoys, as it were, to these places to try and get agreement from various educated scholars that his marriage to Catherine is null and void. And Paul gets sent to Paris to do this. And what he does there, again, is very difficult to follow because Paul later rewrites his own history. Once he has had this conversion to turn into the opponent of Henry, he progressively kind of expunges his prior record to show that he'd always been an opponent of Henry. He'd always hated Henry's idea of divorcing Catherine of Aragon. But what he does is, from piecing together various other bits of evidence, it seems very likely that at Paris, Paul very much... Does what his king has demanded of him, and he succeeds in getting a favourable opinion on his great matter from the Paris theologians. He comes back to England, and it's at that point, after he's come back around 1530, it seems that doubts are beginning to come into his mind about Henry. From what we can tell, the doubts aren't actually specifically religious at the beginning. He's more worried on a political sense. In particular, he worries that by renouncing Catherine of Aragon what you're doing is you're calling into question the line of succession of kings and the wars of the roses are still very much in the minds of all people in this period and so paul says look if you muck around with the succession you're risking another decades of civil war like we've just had in the past century so this is where his beginning worries are what they gradually develop into is more of a religious disagreement over the divorce and especially henry's increasing predations on papal power But that doesn't really happen until he's actually gone back. He kind of withdraws himself from the whole process of the king's great matter by going back to Italy. But he goes back to Italy, it should be said, with Henry's blessing and being paid by Henry. So he's not fallen out with Henry officially yet. But he has made it clear that he really doesn't want to carry on working on the king's great matter. He wants to kind of separate himself from that. And this is when you see a real withdrawal, a withdrawal into study, particularly into theology. And it's at this point in the early 1530s, once he's back in Padua in Italy, that he starts really immersing himself in Greek patristic writings, specifically the works of people like Christostom. People talk about at the time that he's undergoing this conversion, exchanging man for God, and he's becoming very much the person who he would later be. And this is the point where I think he kind of buys his time. He doesn't make any pronouncements on Henry's divorce debate. And even when there's really momentous things happening in England, the act of supremacy, he stays quiet. It's only in 1535 where actually events conspire to push him out of hiding and to both make his mind up and state it directly and openly what he thinks about what's been going on in England all this time.
0: When he does state his opinion in the treatise that's become known as the Unitate, or the Unity of the Church, it's fairly frank, isn't it? He compares Henry to past tyrants. He calls him a wild beast, a robber, incestuous, a murderer, an enemy of Christianity. He doesn't mince his words, and I suspect that you're suggesting here, that the reason he has written this is precisely the reason why he should have worried about writing this, which was that men and women in England had been put to death for challenging Henry. Why is he apparently undaunted by the risk in criticising the king?
1: Yeah, part of it is that he makes the decision to write Dei Unitaté, partly because he's persuaded to do so by the king's agents who keep sending him letters, keep sending him men by saying, look, we need you to say, we want you to say what you are. And this is part of his broader plan of getting people to basically put their cards on the table. He doesn't like people to keep their cards to the chest. He wants to know who his enemies are and who his supporters are. So in that sense, he's kind of not given a choice about it. He's made to do it. The other thing is that Henry... Executes in 1535, as you say, Thomas More, renowned humanist, not just in England, but throughout Europe. So that's cutting to the core of this pillar of humanist learning that Paul himself is. That this is a big deal, the execution of More. But he also executes John Fisher, who is Bishop of Rochester and had just been made a cardinal or was in the process of being made a cardinal and is executed. So again, another man widely regarded as both a humanist, but also as a very pious reforming bishop throughout Europe. So two really big names that Henry has executed. This weighs really heavily, I think, on Paul's heart, as it were. And in the Dei he does give an explanation for why he feels like he has to say something. And it's to do with the execution of these two great pillars. And he says, look, before I kind of kept my head down, I hadn't said anything, but now I feel like I can't do anything but comment on what's going on. And the Dei in a sense, is a big, complex text, and it is very much a text which is vitriolic. It says all of these extreme things that you wouldn't really think of saying to a king, but... I think they genuinely come from a place not of, well, anger, yes, but also of love for Henry VIII. And he does say this repeated times over and over, that he's saying this because he's worried about the soul of Henry. And he's worried about the souls of all the people in England who he's bringing along with him. And that what he's trying to do is save him. And the bitter language, the extremity of the language is trying to shock him into this. Now... To an extent, that is the humanist rhetorical trope, but I think Henry really means this. He did feel a debt to Henry, and whenever Henry subsequently accused him of being a traitor and not loving the king and country, he really pushes back against this. He says, no, look, I really do love Henry and I love England, but this is why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I'm worried about them. Because I love them, I need to do this. And that's why he goes so hard on the points that he is making in the De Unitaté.
0: I think one thing you said that's so important actually to remember is that we're so familiar with Moore and Fisher dying that it's hard to put ourselves to the other side of it before it happened and think about exactly how shocking it was. And that you've chosen two of the most upstanding members of society yeah. and of learning of the church. And killed those people is the thing that's so shocking about it. If it had been some sort of scurrilous rascal who's not doing what he's told, that's one thing. But it's these people. And I suppose it really gives us some sense of the enormity of what Henry was doing. And the fact that Paul responds to that as opposed to the actual break we wrote gives us a sense of the weightiness of that. A couple of years after De Unitate, we have the startling Exeter conspiracy. Can you tell us about this episode and Paul's involvement and also how he escapes punishment?
1: Yeah, the Exeter conspiracy is difficult to know how much of it is true and how much of it is made up. It's very easy to see it. And I kind of personally think it is this that this is basically Henry getting his own back on Reginald Paul. It's basically him showing, look, this is what happens to my enemies. (laughs) And so it's a conspiracy which it centres around Paul's wider family. And what they do is they bring in Paul's brother Jeffrey Paul for questioning and essentially torture him and put him on such psychological stress that he ultimately cracks and he implicates lots and lots of people, including his older brother. Henry Lord Montague, who is ultimately executed, but also implicating his mother, who is subsequently imprisoned and executed a few years later. The conspiracy itself is all about essentially the idea that Reginald Paul is orchestrating this attempt to basically overthrow the kingdom. There's suggestions that it's all about trying to put Paul himself on the throne, or one of his brothers on the throne, to rule England in its stead. Now, is there actually a conspiracy here? Well, There is certainly lots of connections and correspondence between Paul in Italy and his brothers and various other members of the English kind of aristocracy in England. And some of those letters are certainly suspicious, let's say. They are talking about how England's going to get back to being Catholic. Paul is also, in this period, sent on a legation, which is essentially a diplomatic mission by the papacy, which officially is about trying to achieve peace between the French king and the Spanish emperor. But unofficially, it is about trying to orchestrate some sort of opposition against England to try and force England to come back into the papal fold and discussions that Paul is having there are about things like a economic blockade of England but also potentially about a military action by Spain and France against England. So Paul is involved in these vaguely you know conspiratorial things against England and he is in contact with people in England about it so there might be some substance to it. But ultimately, the ex-conspiracy, I think, is Henry's attempt to basically show, look, you can't get away with saying these things, being an open opponent of Henry VIII without there being consequences.
0: Now, in Paul's case, being an enemy of Henry certainly made him a friend of the Pope. And he reaches star status in the Roman Catholic Church in the late 1530s. Cardinal, then Governor of the Papal States, one of the three legates of the Council of Trent, which is a council convened to debate matters of church doctrine in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation. What kind of voice was Paul in these years? Do we have evidence of his vision or theology?
1: Yeah, so this is an area which I think is always, certainly in terms of English history, is often passed over when we think about Paul as an individual of importance for English history. It's normally about his opposition to Henry and later on when he comes back under Mary. But actually, he's got this whole side gig as cardinal in the Church of Rome, and he's deeply involved in matters of reform of the Catholic Church the Catholic Church in this period, to an extent which is really difficult to appreciate when we look at it in retrospect, when we think about how Catholicism, Protestantism, two rival camps, and you know, they have very distinct and solidified doctrinal ideas, and they are in opposition to each other. Well, in this period in Italy, actually, the idea of Catholic orthodoxy is a very fluid idea. There are lots of Specific doctrines which would later be clarified by the Council of Trent are not yet clarified. So actually you can get people who are Catholic and are members of the papal curia, they are cardinals themselves, who have very different ideas to other cardinals in the church and that is seen as a problem but it's not seen as them being heretics yet. So there's this fluidity and so Paul is occupying a place within this fluid structure which tends in one particular direction. So virtually all of the ecclesiastical hierarchy of the Roman church at this period agree that there is a need for reform in some sense and that need for reform is inspired by all sorts of things. There's a long medieval legacy of reform within the church But it's given a new impetus by things like Renaissance humanism, by the challenge of Luther, certainly. And so it is all coming to head at this period. Everyone agrees that we need to reform abuses within the church. And there's lots of agreement about we need to get rid of corruption. There's lots of corruption in the church. We need to get rid of things like absenteeism of bishops being appointed to dioceses but never actually living in those dioceses or even visiting them, just using them as money making things and also an agreement that we need to raise the standards of the clergy. They need to be educated, be able to preach. So there is a widespread agreement here. And Paul is involved with lots of other members of the church in this period in a reforming commission, which is established by the Pope, which said, look, give me some suggestions for what you think we should do to best reform the church. So he's part of this wider reforming circle. But Paul is actually in a subset of this reforming circle that thinks that it's not just practices that need reforming, not just corruption and abuses that need reforming but it's actually doctrines as well and he sees the reform of doctrines as a way of potentially creating a reconciliation between Protestants like Luther so the more moderate Protestants as it were and Catholicism so the fact that there is this fluidity of religious belief offers the opportunity for a reform of doctrine which could bridge the gap again between Protestants and Catholics And in particular, he's really keen on the idea of thinking about reform to the doctrine of salvation, specifically the idea of justification. Now, justification by faith is the key Lutheran doctrine which marks Luther's movement away from the Catholic Church. But actually, there are lots of people around Paul who think that actually there is space for a Catholic revision to the doctrine which could bring it closer in line with a Lutheran idea, where actually the emphasis is put back on faith rather than good works in the process of salvation. And in doing so, creating the opportunity for a reconciliation between these parties. So one person who's particularly prominent and comes to these beliefs is one of Paul's friends, which is Cardinal Gasparo Contarini, who goes to this council between Catholic Church and including lots of Lutherans and also Martin Butzer at Regensburg in 1541. And at that council, he comes to an agreement on justification that both Protestants and the Catholics say this is something we can get behind. And it's agreement which tends very much in the direction of a justification by faith alone. It's not in as blunt terms as that. It's a little more of a fudge, as it were, which includes the fact that Good works are also part of justification, but they're just not an operative part of justification. Ultimately, that council agrees on that, but falls down on various other points. So it doesn't come to anything. But that's the milieu that Paul himself is occupying. I guess you'd say the left wing of the reform movement, the more eager to go further, to reconcile with Protestantism as much as possible, whilst also reforming abuses, improving the standards of the clergy. He, increasingly over the 1540s, though, falls in with another set of people who are on this left wing of the reform movement in Italy, but are beginning to make the step beyond Catholic reform into Protestantism. And these people are sometimes called the spirituali. They often call themselves the spirituali or the spiritual ones to show that they're different from other people. They are an amorphous group. They're not a homogenous group, but they have some key beliefs amongst them. So they believe very much in this ascetic piety, focused on reading scripture, on study, on contemplation, living an almost quasi monastic lifestyle. They're also very much of this belief in the reform of beliefs about justification by faith. They basically have a position almost indistinguishable from Luther on this. They're also very open-minded. They read books, not just of Catholics, but of different Protestant theologians. So they're reading books by Luther, by Calvin. They're thinking about these ideas. They're taking an open mind to try and understand what's going on. And they're particularly inspired by this one quite shady individual, as it were, who is Juan de Valdez, who's a Spanish humanist and a mystic, who has a very idiosyncratic set of beliefs. He'd been chased out of Spain by the Spanish Inquisition, comes to Italy, comes to Naples, where he begins spreading some of his ideas, and then various of his disciples find their way into Paul's circle, as it were. And he has this belief which is all about inner revelation. The way to come to salvation is basically an inner process. You can't impose it on somebody, it's something which is the Holy Spirit acting inside. And it's a gradualist process, which outside forces aren't influencing the corollary of that is that well why do you need the outward structures of the church if it's all an inner process why do you need institutions of church why do you need hierarchies in the church is it all just inner lives now often the spirituality and members of the spirituality especially Paul don't go this far but they take on lots of Valdez's ideas in what they're talking about and they are articulated this kind of manifesto of Paul and his circle. I guess manifesto might be a bit of a strong word, but it summarizes lots of their beliefs. In 1543, they produced this book called the Beneficio di Cristo, which is a book that has multiple authors. It's a bit like different people drawing different parts of a donkey and it not coming together quite right. It pulls in lots of different directions, but it sets out their beliefs on justification by faith. It goes into some sort of ideas about mysticism and about inner revelation. It's a complex work, but it sets out a lot of their ideas and is published in Italy in 1543.
2: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support, 100% online So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
1: I'm breathless. I'm panting because I'm hiking up the Inca Trail in the footsteps of the intrepid explorer, Hiram Bingham. Why? Oh, because Dan Snow's history here is going to Machu Picchu. Join me in Peru for an epic mini-series unravelling the mysteries of the Inca, one of the greatest empires that's ever existed. We trace their meteoric rise to power, their domination of mountain, desert, and jungle, their elaborate ritual and practices, including human sacrifices, and their demise at the hands of the Spanish conquistadors, Out now on Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I know the Roman Catholic Church is reviving the use of the Inquisition at this time in order to challenge the Protestant Reformation. Did Paul's membership, as it were, of the spirituality, put him at risk
1: Yes and no. Essentially, from the Roman Inquisitions revived in 1541 into 1542, and that spells the beginning of the closing of the window, which had allowed groups like the Spirituali to exist within Italy and to exist to an extent freely. These people weren't heretics yet because the Catholic Church hadn't decided what it believed about, justification by faith. And so they were able to occupy this window. And it should be said that the spirituali are not like a fringe group. They seem like a fringe group. And in subsequent generations, the Catholic Church would say that they were a fringe group as retrospective whitewashing of what was going on. But they were cardinals. There was Michelangelo. The artist was part of this group. There's even a suggestion that some of these spiritual ideas find their way into the frescoes of the Pauline Chapel in the Vatican. So, you know, these are ideas which are not necessarily on the fringe, but the place and the window for them to survive in Italy is closing. And the 1541 beginnings of the Roman Inquisition spell the beginning of that decline. So there's a series of events that actually happen over the 1540s, which make it harder and harder for this group to continue with their beliefs openly, at least. So we have 1541, the Roman Inquisition. In 1542, two prominent members of this Spirituali group, who are associated with Paul and lots of the other members of the Spirituali cardinals, and these certain individuals, they cross the Rubicon, as it were, to go and become Protestants. So you have Bernardino Orsino and Pietro Martire de Vermigli, who both leave Italy, escape and become Protestants. They both end up back in England, actually, in Edward's reign and become quite leading lights of the English Reformation under Edward. Then in 1543, you have the Beneficio di Cristo, which gets published and subsequently draws more attention to the spirituality the and affects the sense that actually these people are dabbling in things which are now beginning to be seen increasingly like heresy. And things all really come to a head once the Council of Trent eventually meets for its first sittings towards the end of the 1540s. And what happens at those meetings, Paul is there, Paul is one of the legates who's supposed to be leading this meeting, and he tries to set out and use the Council of Trent at the beginning to try and put forward his ideas and say, look, these are the ideas we should be following, especially over justification by faith. And he gives this long speech at the beginning of the discussion at Trent about justification, where he says, look, We've got to read all the books of everybody. We can't just say Luther said this, therefore it's false. We've got to read the books of everyone, even the people we think are enemies, and find the good in them. Reject the bits that we think are wrong, but find the bits that are right. And he says this, but it ultimately falls on deaf ears. And the Council of Trent ultimately decides on a definition of justification, which completely rules out the spiritual understandings of it and the Lutheran understandings of it. And this is the turning point, I guess, when it becomes very, very difficult to hold on to these beliefs. With the Council of Trent deciding this, Paul doesn't suddenly say, okay, that's it, and give up on it. But what he does is his usual thing, like he did with the King's Great Matter, Henry VIII's divorce. Instead of confronting the problem, he basically withdraws into himself. He shuts down. He ultimately withdraws from the papal curia. And he basically goes back into almost a monastic seclusion again, so that he doesn't really have to face the problems that have happened and the rejection of his worldview, his theology.
0: Skipping ahead a few years now, but given these links to the spirituality, these ideas which are now beyond the pale as far as the Roman Catholic Church is concerned, how do we explain that in 1553, the new Catholic Queen of England, Mary I, appoints Paul to reconstitute her Church of England? What makes him a great choice? And What do they achieve together?
1: Yeah, in a sense, nobody is expecting Mary to become queen. You know, Edward is very young, seems like he'll have a long life, and that's basically England's lost to Protestantism. And so Edward's death and ultimately the accession of Mary basically opens the doors for an opportunity for Paul to come back. These worries about his orthodoxy, which are voiced openly to an extent are not yet at fever pitch he's not yet officially being investigated by the roman inquisition so he's not beyond the pale yet people around him are beginning to come into difficulty but he himself is still respected in the catholic church he's still a cardinal he doesn't have any problems in that sense so there's no reason why he can't be appointed to england and he's the obvious choice for england because he is an english cardinal he speaks english he's been involved in all these attempts to get england back to the faith he's the obvious choice to send back to england It helps also that the Pope who is elected around this time is one who is kind of a more moderate Pope. He's not on the hawkish side of the Roman Church. He's more on the kind of towards the middle of this spectrum of reform. And so he's open to Paul as well. So Paul is appointed to come back to England. He does have a long wait time before he actually gets back into England. So Mary comes into power in 1553, but Paul isn't allowed back in for several years, partly because of the match between Mary and Philip II of Spain and Charles V... Philip's father is very worried that if Paul comes back, his association with the papacy is going to cause problems in England where they've been taught to think that the papacy is the Antichrist. So he says, look, you know, let's wait. Let's get Mary secure on the throne. Let's get the marriage of Mary and Philip together. Let's get that all sorted before we can get Paul back. So he basically says, keep him away because he's going to cause trouble. But eventually, Paul comes back in. As first as papal legate, He's subsequently appointed Archbishop of Canterbury to a church which has been through a tumultuous period. It's gone from the Penritian Reformation, which is a strange sort of Catholicism, to an Edwardian Reformation, which is a very extreme sort of Protestant Reformation. And now we've got the attempt to restore Catholicism in England, headed by Mary and headed by Paul. The question, I guess, here is how does Paul's spiritual journey in Italy translate to an England which is renowned, certainly not for these reconciling ideas between Protestants and Catholics, but actually for kind of persecuting Protestants and, you know, the burnings of almost 300 individuals. So at first glance, these don't seem to match up. We can't see how somebody who had once said to the Council of Trent, don't read Luther and say just because it's Luther, it's wrong can go from that to burning people for their Protestant beliefs. But there's actually more continuities than there seem on the face of it, in terms of what Paul did when he was in Italy, his beliefs in Italy, and what he does in England. So I guess the first thing is that Paul comes back and is very much the person pushing for the reconciliation with the papacy, so rejoining of England back to the papal fold. And the idea of the importance of papal authority is something which you can see throughout Paul's work from his De Unitate onwards. It's a really important thing for Paul. It's not important because he thinks of the Pope as a kind of papal supremacy role. He doesn't see it like that. He's much more of a belief that the Pope should be not so much a domineering force in the church, but its most faithful servant. So a servant of the church rather than the ultimate head of the church. He thinks that that is what helps create unity in the church. And for him, unity is the sign of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the church. So it's integral. So that is an idea which he comes back to England and he pushes. And he's resisting against these decades of anti-papal propaganda in England and saying, look, no, we've got the papacy is super important. And so he does all sorts of things to try and do that. He institutes an annual day of celebration for reconciliation with Rome. He's instrumental in putting forward a lot of propaganda, which is all about how papacy is super important. So that's one thing which is certainly a continuity between Italian Paul and English Paul. You've also got the idea of the reform of the clergy, which is another thing which unites the Italian Paul and the English Paul. Paul goes for this in all sorts of different ways. He calls this very influential synod in London during the 1550s where he puts forward a lot of reforming proposals and lots of them are about the clergy and particularly the bishops and he says look the bishops need to be models of piety they need to be learned they need to live simple lives they need to be resident in their diocese and he goes on further for the lower clergy he says they need to be educated we've got to sort out the education of the clergy they've got to be able to give sermons that they've written themselves ideally And so they need to have proper education. And he does that in two different ways. One is the reform and the purging of the universities of all Protestant influence that they developed under Edward in particular. And turning the universities into these means of inculcating Catholic belief. But also he has this really novel idea at this time of setting up seminaries. So essentially schools for children of sort of 12 upwards where they would be educated in Christian doctrine in schools attached to cathedrals. And this idea of taking people at a young age and educating them for the priesthood from that early point is a really novel idea and subsequently has a really important legacy in Europe. But Paul is pushing forward that. So you've got importance of the papacy, the importance of reform of the clergy, both linking Italian and English Paul. You've also got His kind of emphasis on piety, the contemplative, almost meditative piety that he's developed in Italy amongst the spirituali, you see that coming in again in England. In his reforms of monasticism, you can see this. He's encouraging monastic orders which spread these ideas about piety. He's also putting forward ideas about the importance of people being taught scripture in sermons so that they can reflect on it, not necessarily them reading it themselves because he doesn't really trust people to be able to get the right meanings, but certainly to reflect upon that. But this question of where does the conciliatory pool go is the one which is difficult to square, as it were. The idea that he in Italy was trying to use doctrine over justification to reunite with Protestantism seems so far away from what happened in England. And I think there are three potential explanations for why that is. I think, first of all, it might be that he's given up on these beliefs altogether. The Council of Trent's ruling that actually, you know, justification is like this, not like that ultimately impresses on Paul that, look, this is a non-starter. I've just got to give up on these ideas. I think there is a degree of that. And there is evidence that he talks to people where he says, look, I did believe this once, but now I've come to this way of thinking. But as ever with Paul, you can't tell if he's just covering himself and hiding his beliefs. So it's not entirely sure that that's the case, but it may be. There is another question of maybe Paul still had these ideas, but just doesn't act on them. There has been question over how involved Paul was in the burnings in England
0: I mean, I wanted to ask you that because it feels that whilst there are sort of remarkable achievements in building back up a reformed Roman Catholic faith in England. We still do have to talk about the burning of the heretics and he's Archbishop of Canterbury at a time where they're doing something that's completely the opposite to being conciliatory in terms of their treatment of people who have a different way of understanding justification. How far should he carry responsibility?
1: It's a question which there's disagreement, as it were. I think it's inconceivable that Paul can't be given ultimate responsibility for something which happened under his watch as Archbishop. The idea that the burnings would have happened without his at least tacit agreement seems far-fetched. But there are signs that he is certainly trying to moderate it when he can, Not that he disagrees with it fundamentally, but he moderates the extremities of it when he can. So there's examples of him intervening, for example, with Bishop Bonner in London, who has this reputation as bloody Bonner for being particularly virulent against the Protestants. Whether that's earned or not is another question, but... Paul does sometimes send letters to him where he's saying, well, you know, I'm reserving judgment on these. And Bonner writes him at one point saying, look, in the past, when I've tried to burn people, you've told me off. So I'm asking you whether I can burn these people this time. So there's clear evidence of him moderating a little bit then. There's a couple of examples of foreign observers in England reporting that Paul isn't necessarily completely on board with what's going on. A Spanish ambassador calls him lukewarm in matters of the faith. There's another Spanish representative in England who says he's more moderate than I'd like in the treatment of heretics. So there are these things around him. In John Fox's Acts and Monuments, the Protestant polemic, which records all of the burnings of these Protestants and presents them as martyrs, which actually also says that Paul is not the bloody sort of Catholic. He's the more moderate. So there is kind of this potential legacy that he's not that involved. But overall, he has to bear some responsibility because he does allow it to happen and certainly at the very end of Mary's reign, he does get directly involved himself in some of the trials. So he does bear responsibility. So the question of how it matches up with what he did in Italy does still stand. For me, the most compelling reason is that he's worried about what's going on in Italy at the same time. So in Italy, in 1555, you get the Pope, Paul IV, who's elected, who is Gian Pietro Carafa, who is one of the more hardline members of the Curia who had actually in the past accused Paul of being a heretic and being a favour of heretics. He becomes Pope. And so he's also the head of the Roman Inquisition. He is beginning to make proper moves against the spirituali at this point over the 1550s. So he's imprisoning people like Cardinal Giovanni Morone, who is another member of the Curia who is associated with Paul also is beginning these subterranean movements against the spirituality. He basically wants to purge the spirituality from the Catholic Church. He thinks that they are the problem rather than the solution to the church's problems. And so what you get is a ratcheting up of the heresy investigations against him. And you can see Paul, to an extent, doesn't have a choice but to go hard on heretics in England, in part to clear his own name, to try and remove him from suspicion. So for me, that is one of the ways of squaring the circle as to the Italian and English pool. I also think it's worth noting that the reason that most Protestants were burned in Mary's reign is because of their lack of orthodoxy, in inverted commas, on the mass and on the papacy. Both things which Paul had never actually himself had any doubt about. So people being executed for things that he'd always seen as outside of orthodoxy. So in that sense, there's not a division there, but there's certainly a row back from any conciliatory attempts.
0: Paul and Mary both died on the same day, the 17th of November, 1558. And to close, I'd like to ask you how and why you think we should remember Paul today?
1: We need to remember him for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons we need to remember him is his legacy in the 16th century itself was very important for a number of reasons. And so he has a big impact on the development of English Catholicism in Elizabeth's reign and onwards, but also on European Catholicism. So in terms of English Catholicism, lots of his ideas, as first set out in his De Unitate, but actually continued throughout his life, They feed into English Catholic identity in a really big way, especially his ideas about the papacy. They become, in a sense, from Elizabeth's reign, we first start seeing properly Roman Catholics, people whose loyalty to Rome and to the papacy is what marks them as their identity as Catholics in opposition to the Protestant English state. And Paul, I think, is a person who sets that up. He creates the foundations for that Roman identity both through his De Unitate, but once he comes back to England and he's enforcing these ideas of the importance of the papacy as a kind of marker of faith, that is very much important for creating almost the strong identity which allows English Catholicism to survive in England. And Paul's works are repeatedly reprinted under Elizabeth, which shows how people are recognising that they're important. Lots of the key Elizabethan polemicists who, again, help create almost this English Catholic Church anew, this Catholic Church in under the cross, they refer to Paul and they talk about his work. So there's a real continuity there. But I think he's more important for European Catholicism. And actually, lots of Paul's ideas go on to be extremely important in the developing counter-reformation in Rome, which is ironic considering that at the time of his death, he's under suspicion. There's a kind of trial ongoing of him when he dies by the Inquisition. So it's ironic that he actually helped shape the course of the Catholic Church. But lots of his ideas do go on to influence the final sittings of the Council of Trent in the 1560s. So Paul's Legatine Synod, which we talked about a bit earlier, especially his ideas about educating the clergy, they are basically adopted verbatim by the Council of Trent and put into law and made the marker for people to follow. So specifically the seminary legislation that the Council of Trent puts forward is basically copied from Paul. There's other ideas as well that get copied because the Crees of Paul's Legatine Synod get republished in Italy in 1562 and disseminated throughout Catholic Europe and become really important for lots of bishops. So one in particular is Carlo Borromeo, who is often seen as the shining light of the Counter-Reformation, a bishop who took his responsibilities as bishop really seriously, tried to reform his diocese of Milan. Borromeo recruits people who'd worked alongside Paul in England. One of them is Nicola Romaneto, and the other is Thomas Goldwell. Both had been key figures in the Marian Church. Borromeo basically recruits them specifically because they'd been part of Paul's reforms in England, and he uses those ideas to reform his diocese there. So in this way, I think Paul's significance is European-wide and long-lasting, because he creates a framework for reforming the Catholic Church, which is partially adopted elsewhere throughout Europe. But for historians, Paul is important because he's this really salutary reminder that the divisions that the Reformation causes between Protestants and Catholics are not set in stone. It's not a preordained end point that we would end up where the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches ended up. That actually there was this theologically robust, viable Path to reconciliation, which lots of key individuals who were realistic, they were incredibly learned, they wanted to try and achieve this. And so it's a path not taken, but it's a path that could have been taken. And I think that that's a really important reminder in this period because it's very easy to see it as a foregone conclusion that Martin Luther nails up his 95 theses and from that point on, it was always going to splinter. Or actually, maybe it could have come together again. So for me, that's why Paul is most important, because he reminds us and shows us that. But he also shows the personal side of the difficulty of navigating the religious difficulties at this period. And I think one of the things that stands out for me for Paul's life is that he really struggles to reconcile himself to what the Catholic Church ultimately decides to do. But he does do that. And so it's the personal journey that he goes on, I think, exemplifies how difficult it was for people in this period to understand where they situate themselves in this changing religious map. I think there's a personal importance to Paul as well for humanising the Reformation as a process.
0: And it's so interesting that somebody who remains within the Catholic Church, but is very much a reformer in terms of his ideas of how that faith should develop, was nevertheless an enemy to Henry VIII who precisely thought of himself as a Catholic, just not a Roman Catholic, and as a reformer. It demonstrates that even if your ideas may overlap, that you can end up in very different places. Thank you so much for such a clear introduction to this important character, who's probably on the fringes of people's mind and imagination up until this point, but you've put him centre stage. I'm grateful to you for taking the time to explain all of
1: this work to us. Thank you. Thank you for having me
0: and thanks to you for listening to not just the tudors from history hit and also to my researcher alice smith and my producer rob weinberg we are always eager to hear from you so do drop us a line at not just the at historyhit.com or on x formerly known as twitter at not just Tudors, and please remember to follow Not Just the Tudors wherever you get your podcasts, so you get each new episode as soon as it's released. Before
2: Shopify, were you wondering where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform, supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Very easy on the ching.
1: Oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof.
2: Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.
0: History is full of extraordinary people. The Tudors being just a handful.